overthinking it. Will we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve? This is the Overthinking It book club, and we are reading the comic book series Saga by Brian Vaughn and Fiona Staples. Uh, I'm Ben Adams, your host. Uh, This is the first episode of our book club, and we are very excited to get started. Uh, In this episode, we'll be discussing chapters one through three, so uh, hopefully you've read those and we'll be pushing through. And we're excited to get the conversation started. Uh, We have a great panel of four overthinkers. Uh, First, uh, hailing from the Great White North, uh, we have Richard Rosenbaum. Hi, Richard. Hey, Ben. How's it going? And uh, if everybody could uh, say uh, what your familiarity with the book is. So, Richard, how how far are you and have you read it before? Uh, I am right now towards the end of the first volume, and I haven't read it before. I've been meaning to for a really long time. It's been one of those books that have been... Uh, on my radar because it's everybody loves it and uh i've been just looking for an opportunity to read it and this uh this was a perfect one great to hear uh next we have uh ryan sheely hey ryan uh hey ben uh so my familiarity is that i purchased the hardcover uh book one so that collects the three uh trade paperback volumes uh and i purchased that about two weeks ago and uh read it all in basically one sitting uh, so i thought <laughs> i i thought i was going to read you know maybe just the first chapter that became the first uh the first uh edition the first volume and then at that point i was so deep in uh that i might as well just push all the way through so now i'm uh, on my second reading uh, already so uh, if at this pace i will keep lapping you guys time after time <laughs> nice he did ryan did what i did with ender's game right exactly <laughs> you were supposed to be our control subject and that didn't didn't quite work out it did not take, say, yeah i should say ryan you're coming at us from boston is that right boston massachusetts Okay, so apparently there's nothing to do but read comics in Boston. Moving right along, uh, Matt Rather is coming at us from uh, L.A., Southern California. Hey, Matt. The bleeding edge of America. The bleeding edge. This is my... That's me. I'm in the Bay Area. I think I'm the bleeding edge. Yeah, I suppose, technologically speaking. I just just think we make all the movies like Terminator and Fast and the Furious. So, you know, we're the capital of culture. Uh, But this is is my third time through Saga. I read all the extant Saga and started subscribing to new issues as they came and then i did a second read through a while back uh up through i think issue 24 uh and so this is my third this is my third reading of the of the entire series well that's great sounds we'll have somebody that uh has a little bit of perspective and i should say for perspective uh, listeners we will not be spoiling past where we've read in the books so some of that will help our discussion but we won't be talking about uh, things that happen in the future which is good because i haven't read past uh chapter three i am Doing my best to hold off. Actually, I started Chapter 4 a little bit, but still, I'm uh, doing my best to hold off and read along with you, uh, our, our listener. Uh, I'm Ben Adams. I'm coming at you from San Francisco, and we're, we're ready for the book club. We're going to do something a little different uh, on this book club than we did on previous book clubs or on other podcasts. We're going to be, since, since we have a different medium here, we have the comic book medium, we're going to do... Instead of a question of the week, a panel of the week. Each member of our panel will give a panel of the comic book that they found interesting or exciting or just beautiful. Whatever, whatever criteria you want to use to, to pick a panel and bring it to the attention of the reader. Uh, so we'll start in alphabetical again. Uh, Richard, what's, what's your panel for the panel? Uh, well, yeah, I'm not used to being first alphabetically. That's really weird. Yeah, R is pretty deep. Having yeah, a deep, it's pretty a, deep. It's a deep cut. Okay. Um, so my favorite panel was uh, at when they're on their way to the rocket ship forest, and they're just expecting to hit the uncanny bridge, and then you turn the page, and it's a full two-page splash of um, seems like a giant spiky turtle, battle turtle fighting spaceships. And all of these tiny figures with, seems like torches and pitchforks mostly, fighting this battle where the bridge is supposed to have been and is now destroyed. And the the art is really beautiful and has been really beautiful all throughout. And, And yet this was the first panel that really made me stop and take a very, very close look at for quite a long time. It's a, is it in the printed edition? Is it a full bleed? 
Yeah. And, and for, cause for me, I read them digitally. And so like, I don't have that, like turning the, turning the page to a full page spread is such a dramatic, yeah. uh, such a dramatic move and such a great weapon in the, in the comic book arsenal, uh, in the kind of like the graphic literature arsenal, uh, in general. And it's something that's sort of lost in, in the, the format that I do reading them on my iPad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. It's full bleed and you, and you really get that, uh, you know, when you don't have the gutters all around it and like you're reading it, it's a normal comic book, a normal comic book. And then you get to this, this one, you know, this one gorgeous page and it works and um, you can't overdo it, but it's one of the real strengths of, of this medium. Yeah. Yeah. I, that, that panel piqued me as well for, for exactly yeah. that reason of you just get that, that big kind of shock of having this huge tableau laid out and it, it yeah. does it does re- reward close inspection because it's just a lot of craziness packed into a, a pretty small frame there and yeah. though from that at that point we've already seen a little bit of like explosions and stuff and we've already seen some like pulling out uh like the landfall and wreath page is yeah. uh you know is pretty big scale there's something about this and i think it's by setting the figures like uh, the way you describe with with tiny little people a giant battle turtle and and then big, big insect-like spaceships, right? Yeah. That that yeah. look the like scale is really, uh, yeah. is really it really draws you in. It really it really makes you uh, stop and 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 feel like you have to take in this entire scene, right? Yeah, I think that's uh, that's a good panel, uh, Ryan. Uh, what's your panel for the panel? Well, in fact, that was mine. So oh. I've, been, uh, I've, been, if I've been a little quiet during the last discussions. I've been leafing through to all of my other sticky notes that I flagged uh, for my other favorites. Yeah, um, and, you should have been born closer to the beginning of the alphabet. I know. I know. Exactly. If only I were Ryan Healy instead. <laughs> uh, uh, everything would have been different. I'd be done by now. Um, I'd, say, I'd say my backup uh, is actually the last panel of chapter one. Um, and I think that, I mean, for me, it's hard for me to read any one comics panel um, in isolation, I guess, because early in I'm not I don't read a lot of comics, but I know early in my time of reading comics, I read Scott McCloud's uh, Understanding Comics. And uh, part of what McCloud talks a lot about uh, in comics is reading comics as serial art. So it's not just single uh, panels and single pieces of art, but the sequence. uh, So it's as sequential art. Uh, And so I think what's really cool about um, the last uh, panel, uh, the last picture in chapter one, uh, like Richard's, it's also a um, a full bleed, but it's also just a uh, single page, um, and it uh, sets up. Uh, interestingly, it foregrounds our family, um, but uh, then with the glowing red eyes in the background, right? And uh, the text, uh, which is uh, Hazel's um, voiceover, is uh, is is the, the line that's on this page is not everybody does. Um, but then what comes before that, and kind of what's really interesting, and what it's building up to um, sequentially, is that you know thanks to her parents. Um, she at least gets to grow old. Uh, and so I think there is a lot, um, both in the single panel, both setting up the family and then the kind of lurking world that is outside and kind of immediately moves into the next chapter and pr- part of what made this so compulsively page-turning for me. Um, but that also then just kind of um, the interplay of the kind of tension of, like, setting up the point, uh, and then this big payoff, right? And, and again, I think that uh, Richard's panel also is another example of kind of setting up, setting up, setting up, and then you turn a page to a full blade, bleed, single or, or double page uh, image, and there's a huge payoff. And so I feel like this is both a, an exemplar of that, uh, and I think just like a really depiction of our, um, of our central characters that have been uh, set up in this chapter, and they're kind of launching off uh, on this uh, uh, saga uh, on which they're about to embark. I mean, it's a mini allegory of the whole story, right? Like it's right. A, it's a family set against a sort of hostile hostile circumstances or a hostile landscape. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So there's a tremendous, and I think I think we'll talk about this. But there's so much, uh, you know, at every level, there is just so much economy of 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 saying a lot and packing a lot of um, emotional punch and symbolic punch uh, with very little, right? And and it's, it's really just um, you know making the most of what is uh, there uh, and what has come before to, for it to then be much more than the sum of its parts. Uh, so I found that to be a really striking uh, and and resonant image. 
All right, and uh, how about you, Matt? I guess I guess my, we're all going to pick ones from uh, from the first issue, from chapter one. Um, the uh, the one that that I'm going to pick is. Uh, it's something uh, from the first issue. You know, there's the the opening scene. Uh, then there's a sort of zoom out to see uh, the context. Um, a little bit of setting up. Uh, a little bit of setting up of. Uh you know, um, Landfall's capital, and then you turn the page, and uh, Prince Robot is banging his wife. And that's, uh, you know... And so that so, was my other backup. <laughs> but I'm, it's actually, it's not, it's not that. That does a lot of the things that we've been, we've been talking about, and it, it uh, you know what I mean? It, it uh, provides a kind of surprising, uh, both an undermining and, uh, you know, and a kind of climax. But it's actually the following page, the bottom right panel, uh, when the butler comes in and the butler is an alligator walking on two feet dressed right. in a dressed in a tailcoat with white gloves and like a a, a waistcoat and a cravat and whatnot <laughs> um the uh and that's up, up till now everything has been a little like sci-fi fantasy anthropomorphic i mean sure some people have horns some people have wings some people are a monkey but uh <laughs> but, but uh it it just th- there's a kind of whimsy, right? There's a there's a certain amount of of uh, a whimsical quality to this when you see uh, when you see the alligator, and it's it it serves to it serves in a similar way, I think not not necessarily to undercut in the sense of of diminish, but to undercut in the sense of subvert expectations about what a what a sci-fi adventure story you know about uh, interplanetary interstellar war is all about um, it's about al- alligator. It's about funny alligator people. Uh, right. And I, apparently. I, I had a similar reaction to these, these two pages, I think, because I think this is where I finally got the sense like, okay, this is going to be a sublimely weird story and just kind of get used to lots of crazy stuff happening. Like the, there, there's going to be a lot of odd characters, odd in the, you know, in literally in the anthropomorphic sense, characters um, that will be playing all sorts of different roles and subverting expectations. And this is your signal, your last signal to kind of buckle in for weirdness to come. Yeah. Which, which yeah. I appreciate. And I would say that the, the first panel on that spread of uh, Prince Robot uh, boning does that as well, right? So there's like within the span of two pages, there are two subversions, right? The first is going yeah. from like the interplanetary sweep to people with TVs for heads uh, doing it doggy style. And then within the very next page, a uh, alligator butler. And again, it, like you say, it started, it gets you, um, it's training you as to the pace and to expecting the unexpected. Um, but I think in some ways, I like the uh, pointing out the alligator because it's easy for that on a first reading to be swamped by the doggy style television heads. Right. Yeah. And by the by the robot boobs and whatnot and whatnot. Um, it's I mean, it's funny. There are like many dimensions of weirdnesses and there are many dimensions of subversions. Right. I think the full page, uh, the full page panel that is uh, Hazel's birth, where Marco is holding her. He's crying. He says it's a girl. And you have this little you have this little just born infant with her umbilical cord and all covered in blood uh you know and it's it's this this sort of simultaneously kind of gross and and very raw but also very beautiful and very emotional kind of uh uh, uh, kind of thing like that's one dimension of weirdness that like we're not going to be afraid to kind of get v- very graphic in terms of like depicting biology and that's uh, with Hazel and her her uh, sorry not Hazel uh, where Hazel is the girl with Isabel and her guts hanging out um, yeah. right like that's another that's another aspect of that that like her viscera are hanging out below her torso as she floats there uh, a disembodied spirit in the air uh, two issues from now but but uh, that's that's one but then the 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 kind of like the weirdness dimension right is is yet another one and i, I think that's uh, it's worth pointing out those various different panels that it's it's also a signal that though there will be boobs in this book there is no guarantee that it will all be purely for sexploitation that, that this is a, that the the novel uses all of biology for all sorts of different storytelling purposes uh in a way that i think a lot of uh texts are a little afraid to do that we only we only really focus on a couple different things and this is willing to to attack on a lot of different fronts which which i appreciate yeah uh, so i guess that brings me to mine and i will it's similar i will go to the last panel of chapter two i feel obligated to go out of chapter one 
uh, if for no no other reason than to prove to our re- readers that we really have read all of the first three you, chapters. You're doing the Lord's work, sir. Right. So I'm going to go for the last panel of chapter two, where it reveals exactly what these horrors look like, because uh, this is just such a great subversion. You've had these creepy red eyes in the forest, and these red eyes have managed to scare off the stalk, who we've been told is the scariest, biggest badass in the universe. And then it turns out it's a bunch of scared dead kids, which is just such a odd subversion on so many different levels of expectations and it, it packed the similar sort of punch of turning the page there because you, you know at the at the end of one page you have you know the terror alana's terrified look and then you you turn the page and you see what you're looking at which i which i, I think is hard to simulate in almost any any other medium uh, in the same way that you get in a graphic novel. You know, I'm getting the sense that we're going to be talking about subversion or talking about like creating creating expectations and then fulfilling them in a weird way. And it strikes me that what you point out is uh, is a fulfillment. Like these are supposed to be the horrors. These are supposed to be the scary monsters, right? And it, in a way, it's not that. It's not. It's a. It's an anticlimax because it's a bunch of kids, but. In a different, looked at from a different perspective, it's still worse than what you were imagining, which is some sort of conventional, like fantasy horror monster, right? Especially after you've met after you've met the stalk, who who is uh, a, a beautifully imagined, but still kind of like you know Spider Woman, conventional fantasy horror mo- monster. These are a still deeper horror that uh, that kind of come up with, like these are the the children dead, you know, not in the war. And not not from one of the warring sides, right? Like these these kids are they just happened to be born in the wrong place when the war was going on, which is which is somehow still more horrible. Right. right. And like ghost kids can be a horror movie villain, as lots of different horror movies have shown us. Like kids can be scary. Right. And these kids aren't scary for that reason. They're scary because it's awful that children have to die in war. Right. And, like, isn't that the true horror movie? <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and, and so it, it does have that neat subversion. So let's, let's actually take that uh, from that subversive trope and talk about the first, I think, main topic that we've, uh, we, we talked about in the pre-show. And let's talk about, Matt, something you want to talk about, uh, the principal agent problem. Do you want to expand on that a oh, little bit? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, it, as a war story, and, and we should talk about war stories in a bit, but uh, as a war story, this one is set out from the very beginning when the war is described as saying that the war was outsourced. That they started fighting the war against one another, but then eventually they got agents to fight it for them, like the robot kingdom or, you know, various kinds of conscription throughout the galaxy that's depicted in, in the, in the, uh, in that opening sweep when you, when you pull back from the, from the grease monkeys garage, uh, out with the neon wrench on the roof and, and you go out, um, that the, that the war was outsourced. And then once you start looking for it, you see it everywhere, uh, that, you know, they had paid off the grease monkey to, to use the garage that um, that the robots are in the employ of uh, landfall that the um, that uh, a lot of Hazel what Hazel says in chapter three is about good help being hard to find uh, and that like how often you know uh, a person has a need and they get um, they they get it filled by uh, outsourcing right they get it filled by hiring someone to do it uh they get they get it filled by like creating a structure uh that's meant to fill the need and like how often there there can be a tension between between those things i mean that's the the principal agent problem right like that the interests of the person engaging the agent and the interests of the agent being engaged are not always aligned and that's a you know uh, ryan can tell us more about that because it's a problem in in political science but but uh but more than that that once you sort of set the thing in motion um all the various levels of agency and like the freelancers and the you know whatever they um they continue in motion after uh after the original need has been met after the original need has died or progressed or or moved on and it becomes this sort of self-perpetuating downward spiral which is i think what is depicted uh in that first in that first chapter when it when it talks about like the war coming to uh you know little backwater planets like cleave uh the war coming to every corner of the galaxy 
and not not happening on the moon or landfall anymore. And we, we see both of those places and they seem to be relatively peaceful relative to the other locations that were shown in these first several um, these first several chapters. So uh, so I, I and I just so I th- I toss this up having having read through this a couple times now, I toss this up as like a theme that that we should keep an eye on that there's going to be. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I, a quick like uh, corollary of uh, the existence of principal agent problems uh, is the idea that if you want a job right, uh, you should do it yourself. Right. Um, and uh, actually, another panel that I I th- was going to mention it was on my list of contenders, and I actually didn't uh, call on it because I knew that you wanted to talk about principal agent uh, relations. So I wasn't sure if this was yours. Uh, was one that uh, comes in chapter three uh, when Prince Robot is interrogating um, a. Prince prisoner uh on cleave um and is beating the crap out of this guy um and uh the um the soldier uh comes in and says what the heck are you doing um and uh and and he says commencing my interview now be a dear and f the f off um but then hazel's text is help can be nice but some jobs are just too important to delegate. Um, and I think that that is uh, exactly the, the flip side of principal agent problems, right? That, um, you know, if there are, if the idea of outsourcing uh, violence uh, can lead to an escalation, uh, then a flip side is that getting a job done, one of the ways is by closing that chain and doing it yourself and, and not delegating. Um, so I think uh, you're absolutely right that, um, you know, we see things just in these three chapters, and maybe we can ring the changes on a few of the other ones of what happened, the various level, lengths of kind of a chain of, of interest, uh, ranging from do, DIY, uh, huh. Prince Robot, uh, to um, long chains of uh, people hiring people, hiring people, right? Things that are, you know, we would call in corporate terms, subcontracting, uh, and, and how that kind of seems to be relating to the the war that is going on the kind of violence and, and horrors that are kind of the backdrop and kind of environment here yeah so the the interesting thing plot wise about prince jack bauer robot here is that he's um he's actually an agent right he's not mm-hmm. going to delegate mm-hmm. it but he's sort of a private agent right he's like a, a, t- a top operative or something like that and it's it's becomes clear when you see special agent gale from the landfall secret police uh that that the robot kingdom is in the employ of landfall and that the robot king is sending even his son to get the job done right because like as an agent one of the things that you have to do one of the tasks that you have um is to demonstrate to the principal if it's a if it's a like a multi-step game right like demonstrate to the principal and that's in game theoretical terms demonstrate that you are trustworthy that you can get the job done that you're a good agent that your interests are in fact aligned with them so this instance of not delegating is in the context of authority being delegated, but only right. delegated so far. And this right. idea of there's a principle in um, uh, in theology, actually, in, in ecclesiology, the study of how churches are constructed uh, called subsidiarity. And maybe it's a larger mm-hmm. – uh, it's, in, it's in political science. Oh, OK. Well. So it's, um, it comes into that discourse from political science, I guess. Mm-hmm. I'm familiar with it from the- theology. That That uh, is an engagement with the question of what is the right level to solve this problem at? Like what is the right level of administration where this problem needs to be solved? And I guess the, the one that I'm familiar with, the Catholic principle of subsidiarity, is that – Problems should be solved at the lowest level competent to handle them and not and, – and you wouldn't think this, uh, but not kicked up the hierarchy, actually handled in the most local, uh, the most local context possible. Um, and that, that uh, is not the case here, right? Like where it's the, the problem needs to be handled by, uh, by Prince Robot, like not a Baron Robot, not someone from the regular military and certainly not whatever – you know. Uh, military police is, is guarding the guarding the prisoners of war there right like it's got to be done at a at a certain thing and by the way we don't have time for you know humane tactics 
Just a very and a very quick note is that uh, in political science, it's on, used in the literature on decentralization. Oh, so yeah. it's used in a very uh, similar way, but about devolution of, let's say, public service delivery or um, policy formation um, to local versus central government. So it's a, yeah, it's a very similar thing. And you're right that whether you think of it as a kind of you know, geographical sphere or level of hierarchy. Um, you know, one implication uh, that's going on here is that he's not, you know, hiring a subcontractor, whether it's subcontracting to another provider of, of um, butt kicking uh, or to a, a lower level. Um, and it occurs to me, uh, what, uh, to what extent does the family, is the family subject to, to this problem? Right, because we have these three characters, one of whom, you know, the baby is not really capable of doing very much. The other two making decisions for themselves, but also making decisions that affect the group uh, as a whole. You know, not really capable of like none of them are really in charge, and they're all kind of working towards the same goal, but. They, you know, sometimes will have very different ideas of what uh, what they should be doing in order to to achieve that goal, and to what extent one can overrule another. And we we can add on to that, I think, because uh, there is this you know kind of establishment of a principal agent relationship in Isabel attempting to become i think bonded is the word that uh, mm-hmm. is used with Hazel that she wants to help care for this child and so right away we have this parenting problem of how do you reckon with the fact that even though you're the parents you're going to need other people in to help you raise your child which the selection of that agent, you know, the principals here being the parents, the agent being, you know, Isabel, the selection of that agent is an extremely important decision. Uh, and, of course, here they're kind of doing it under duress. Right. Uh, but still, I think it, it's it's the same sort of problem of deciding how you're going to solve these problems and who you're going to invite into your life to solve these problems for you. We have we all have friends who, who are in the process of choosing daycares. And it strikes me as just the most anxiety-provoking. I mean, you know, I don't begrudge anyone, like, many sleepless nights about that decision. It, <clears throat> it, it strikes me as, as tough. I mean, this is interesting, right, because they actually use... Um, explicitly, like the Hazel narration describes Isabel as her babysitter, babysitter. right? And it's exactly that kind of um, a choice of delegating uh, some authority, uh, some parental authority uh, and, and responsibilities to another person. Um, and I think it's really interesting, just like uh, a word that I think um, it was Ben mentioned uh, is about um, selection and the importance of selection um, because there are kind of two um, way, main ways of solving uh, principal agent uh, problems. All right. So one is through sanctions and kind of observing performance and then giving either uh, incentives, positive incentives or punishments for performance or non-performance. Uh, and there's a whole bunch of models of principal agent of contract theory that are all around um, uh, how to design your sanctions and, and incentives uh, that are largely in uh, economics and related disciplines. Um, but then there's a, the other way, uh, which is what Ben mentioned, is selection, is, is screening well someone who has preferences similar to yours as a um, as a parent, uh, and then uh, you have to worry less about uh, alignment of incentives because you've already selected someone who wants to do what you would do. And so I think that you see some of that happening here. And kind of getting back to Richard's question, I think that I think that some of the um, this this idea of how you think about agency problems within um, a marriage, within a family unit, uh, and uh, it has to do with this a little bit as well, um, is that there are, on the one hand, you see, um, you know, between uh, between uh, Alana and uh, and and Marco, um, you see some disagreement, right? And especially, I think one of the earliest disagreements is about names uh, and about other, you know, certain types of child rearing practices, uh, whether there will be a wing bleeding um, uh, ceremony uh, as a, as a rite of uh, passage. You see disagreement, um, but then there are other moments uh, throughout where you see. Um, how perfectly matched they are. They've selected each other, right? And that, that so that there are 
power struggles uh, and an attempt uh, at hierarchy and kind of becoming a principal kind of gets obliterated through a relatively mutual respect and equal partnership, right? And so because I feel like that's, you know, um, principal agent problems are largely largely operate in the world of hierarchy where you have to have uh, someone be the boss of somebody else. Um, and so while there, there are attempts sometimes to to jockey for power uh ultimately there are several uh, at least uh as far as we've read um there are multiple instances of that reequilibrating uh and getting back on equal footing through a variety of processes and what while we're talking about those two versions of selecting as i point out that they're kind of on display here but and again in a way that i think subverts at least what i would have expected because the landfall people use selection. They, they they send their agent out, Prince Robot, because they think he is the right guy for the job, and they know that he won't come he, he won't come back until he he has the job done. And so they're they're using that method of we're, we're going to find the one guy that we think we have a we have a personal relationship with him. We have a personal relationship with his family, and so he's going to go out and do the job for us. Whereas the uh, wreath people use the reward method they just have we're going to put a bounty out on these two and we're going to send a bunch of freelancers at it and whichever freelancer actually accomplishes the mission will get this huge bounty that we've put out um which to me at least is a bit of a subversion because the wreath people are the magic people which to me at least is much smacks much more of finding relationships to be important whereas the landfall are the technocrats they use technology they use guns they use machines which Again, to me, uh, the technocrat is much more likely to use the kind of rigorous economic approach instead of the, you know, let, let's build this on relationships. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's very interesting, right? If you think, like, the robot is the right guy for the job, you're, you're talking about a virtue ethics or a kind of ethics of intrinsic good, right, that, uh, that the robot has. The robot has the good thing, um, which is at, at odds with the technocracy. And if you talk about uh, magic, and magic as depicted in the book requires like things, like requires that you say a secret or that there be snow or something like that. Requires like these uh, these things, which seems to be more about intrinsic benefit. Uh, they are actually, they like they describe a desired end state and then give it give an instrumental benefit in the form of a large reward to whoever, uh, to whoever can bring it about just elaborating on on what you said right and ryan do you want to do you want to wrap us up on the uh this principal agent idea before we move on to our, our next topic well i guess i mean my next topic kind of um well, I, I think that uh, I, I think that uh, we're okay to pivot uh, because my next topic is about uh, is about family units, right? And um, and I think that it it, uh, it it flips off of what I was uh, saying about these uh, egalitarian tendencies in, um, in in Marco and Alana's uh, relationship. Um, and it's what I, what I wanted to talk about is. Um, Parenting as a creative uh, project, or parenting as almost co-authorship, um, and uh, you know that this, uh, th- and this is a, a thing that even precedes what you see uh, as their way of kind of resolving agency problems. Uh, it's the very first line of um, the whole series of the whole book, um, and our very first panel is another um, of the very first panel of of book one or of, of chapter one, uh, issue one, whatever, what have you. Uh, the first substantive panel uh, is a full blade of a close up uh, on Alana, uh, and it says. Uh, and the narration is um, this is how an idea becomes real. Um, and then the, um, the, the text is Alana saying, am I pooping? But it's not pooping. It's the word that we can't say because of our PG-13 rating. Uh, am I pooping? Uh, it feels like I'm pooping. Uh, and uh, I think what's really interesting here and, and like a theme that uh, is in the voiceover um, throughout uh this uh this uh, first sequence and then throughout the chapter uh is this idea that um ideas are fragile things uh and that they uh and you know getting cre- uh, right so if just reading um the hazel text it is this is how an idea becomes real and then going to the next uh page 
Um, and again, I'm just reading the Hazel uh, voiceover or what I kind of read or imagine as a voiceover. But ideas are fragile things. Most don't live long outside of the ether from which they are pulled, kicking and screaming. That's why people create with someone else. Um, and two minds can sometimes improve the odds of an idea's survival. But there are no guarantees, uh, and and uh, and and then uh, it goes back to the panel that I believe was uh, Ben's um, selected panel, which is anyway. This is the day I was born. But I think that before you get to the kind of again subversion of that, um, it could just be as soon be talking about making this comic book itself, <laughs> uh, or <laughs> uh, and 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 I think there's something kind of deliciously meta about. Uh, people creating with someone else, right? So in this case, you have the, um, you know, the the, the co-conspirators of Brian Vaughn, who's the writer, and Fiona Staples, who's the artist. Um, and th- there's a parallel between that kind of joint creative project uh, and the idea of, of kind of bringing an idea to the, into the world and seeing it through, and how that relates to the the project uh, that uh, that Marco and Alana are engaging in of bringing a child into the world. Um, and I think that there is a sense of you know, the two of them having a child is in part even an extreme is kind of a concept project because there is a political project to this baby, um, or at least I interpret it in that way, and we can unpack that a little bit, uh, if, if you like, um, but that even in more mundane, um, uh, uh, non, non, uh, non saga, uh, parenting still, um, starts with an idea of some kind. And so that idea of parenting as co-authorship and as embarking in a joint creative project, I thought was something that was really interesting, uh, and is something that I sort of see, um, at least throughout this first chapter, and I think starting to spill over enough that it's a, a recurring uh, theme. I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot to unpack there. One is that it's a uh, it's about division of labor uh, in the sense of like a uh, a writer and an artist, a visual artist, right? Uh, the other is that like uh, later on in that scene, when when sexy Alana looks looks back at the looks back at Marco and says, "Yeah, last time we, you know when we conceived Hazel, we had that angry sex and you know getting in a fight again." <laughs> Oh yeah, and that <laughs> I'm sure she says it just like that. Also, <laughs> the um, right, like the, there's also a sense of sort of the the value of opposed forces, right? Like or for, forces that are kind of productively in tension with one another, uh, rather than being kind of necessarily even pulling in the same in the same direction. I also think there's this idea uh, in the context of talking about agency and talking about uh, who is the principal and who is the agent, right? There's a sense in which the the child is subservient to the two parents uh, or subordinate i guess in in conception to the two parents because it takes the two parents to have the child and the child is kind of a genetic mix of the two parents which is important here uh, both as a kind of symbolic act of protest against the war that the two sides can can come together and kind of coexist in in one being um and and uh you know also important in like uh giving personality to the child but then the child also kind of has its own prerogatives and its own imperatives, yeah. right? And and that it, that are separate from the parents. And in, to a certain extent, the the child is the principal, right? And the parents yeah. are agents of of the child and provide you know not only uh, uh, food, shelter, nurturing, education, you know. Um, uh, but also sort of like provide like uh, intuit the needs of the child and provide for all the needs um, of the child act on the child's behalf out uh, right out in the world. Uh, and it's, it's very neat because you can kind of see that happening, but the voiceover or the, I mean, it's it, like talking about the kind of the ontological status of this, of this text that is sort of handwritten text that, that doesn't look like normal comic book writing. It looks like yeah. uh, very hand, hand writing writing with with a lot of personality it looks like a person's handwriting um is uh like just scrawled over the scrawled over the panels integrated into the compositions in different ways and like what how this sort of becomes voiceover and and how it works i guess is that probably a master's thesis somewhere but um 
if framed in this way, right, you really are primed to see Hazel as the agent because there's an inevitability mm-hmm. to what she says because she's narrating it, uh, we discover from some far future point. Uh, right. And and so there's a sense in which her parents are working for her uh, to like get her get her to that point. So there's a, I mean there's an interesting kind of both sides, yeah. Oh, and that's interesting. And kind of going back to the parallels for making a creative project, whether it's this book itself or kind of a larger creative project, I think that's interesting. That at a certain point, um, the authors and the creators do serve the project. And I, I actually go back to like some. It makes me think of some of the discourse around uh, George R. R. Martin uh, and the Song of uh, Ice and Fire books, right? Of the, you know the discourse around will he finish and when will the next book come uh, and and so on. Uh, and and I think that that any um, I think especially weirdly a piece of serialized fiction um, starts to create this thing where the creation itself is a principle that the creator serves um, uh, in, in a certain way. Um, and so I think that that is, that is really interesting uh, as, a, as, a, as a parallel for uh, what's something that's going on at kind of a more metatextual level. And one thing I want to, I think that, talking about hazel's uh narration i, I threw this out on the uh, the forum if if you're not familiar with uh, the book club we have uh forums on overthinking it where you can jump in and before we record the podcast we'll throw out some questions and get uh, answers from the readers so i threw out the question of what exactly do we make of the narration text how does it affect uh, the reading experience knowing that this baby which is ultimately the project of the book is getting this baby to adulthood uh what what does it make us to know that at least this one character is safe? And uh, Clay Schultz responded, uh, I think, quite intelligently, telling us that uh, you know it gives us a sense of security that no matter no matter the odds, someone will live. It might not be all sunshine and roses, but it will only be so grim. Uh, which I think is is well put because one thing I'm becoming uh, more more kind of cognizant of as I read not just this book but just kind of consume pop culture in general is the importance in a story of both making and keeping promises with the reader or with the audience. And that doesn't necessarily always mean you can't subvert expectations. Uh, Obviously surprises are great in stories. You know, when a, when a certain key character dies in the first book of game of Thrones, that's certainly a surprise, but that in itself is sort of a promise to the reader that not all of your characters will live. And it, it sets the scene for the kind of book that you'll be reading or the kind of show that you'll be watching and movies that fail to make their promises or fail to live up to those promises and kind of break their own rules, uh, I think, are ones that fail or books that do that, that, that set up a set of rules, that set up a set of promises of this is the world that you're going to be living in for the next hundred pages or whatever, and then break them, kind of, kind of really get under your skin. Whereas you, you can take – if you promise me that this is a book with crazy alligator butlers, I will believe you. <laughs> Yeah, and I'll be happy about reading that book. But if you don't don't introduce the alligator butler until two hundred pages in, it's going to irk you a little bit that you haven't been hearing about these people beforehand. Right. And by the way, there's alligator butlers. Uh, they've been right. here the whole time. I mean, paradoxically, the or ironically rather, the the promise that Hazel's going to make it through actually set, could set you up for like a lot more suffering along the way because you're willing to withstand a lot, you know, provided you're not going to lose your primary emotional investment as you go. And of course, I, I, I say this as one who has not read past this, but I guess we should say it's not that firm of a promise because we know that ghosts exist. So the, 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 the yeah, extent okay. to which she survives, you know, we, we actually, I guess, don't know purely based on the narration, but I think we can have some idea that... Uh, well, she does say old that's, age. That's true. Yeah. Uh, but I, I do like this idea of parenting as a, as a creative project. Um, because I think what's in, one of the things that's most striking about this series and the, the, perhaps the trope that it subverts the most is that this is a sci-fi book about parenting where the war is something that goes on in the background is and the war itself is the enemy. Like right away it's established that there isn't a good side and a bad side to this war. It's just an obstacle in the way of getting this child to adulthood. Which completely flips, I, I think it's fair to say, 99% of science fiction on its head, where sure, maybe characters have kids, but generally speaking, getting from love and marriage to, okay, let's, eight, let's jump the story ahead 20 years so we can now write a sequel where the kid is piloting a starship happens pretty fast. 
Yeah. And um, Prince Robot says exactly the same thing about there not being any uh, good guys and bad guys. Right. right. He says, and, uh, oh, we're, we're working for the highest bidder in this war between good and good. Right. Or, or which is another way of saying between bad and bad. Exactly. <laughs> and um, things, there are intimations of uh, other sorts of parallels that are, that are being set up. Um, on that on that side between you know the 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 robots and these other uh, these other interested but not really interested not not interested for the right reasons let's say uh, in the war's outcome right and and just to carry all that all the way through you know speaking of parenting Prince Robot's motivation is to get home to become a parent which is not a standard science fiction trope of a motivation for a character. It's just right. he just wants to finish this job so he can come home and start a family, which is, which is kind of nice if you weren't a ruthless killer. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's the into the woods motivation. Like by, by, the, end, by the middle of the second act uh, or the end of the second act, the baker is saying, can't we just pursue our lives with our children and our wives? Uh, like adventure is nice, but eventually you got to get, eventually you got to get out of the woods and, and get to the business of making the next, making the next generation. Um, there's, there's, I mean, uh, there's a social part of this that, uh, uh, you know, I'll just mention, and if you don't want to pick it up, that's just fine. But like, I, I, I know a lot of well, I shouldn't say I know a lot of. Uh, I am aware of parents who treat their child like a creative project uh, who are insufferable, right? <laughs> and that, like, that the idea that, like, you're going to sort of custom design, uh, custom design a person, you know, and, like, um, condition them in ways to be the, like, the perfect example of your ethics or whatever uh, is, is terrible and never works, right? That's not exactly what's going on here, I suppose. Well, a lot of art is the same way, right? The most insufferable art is the one that you can tell is just as as controlled as possible by the creator or creators right there's that there's a the trope that you know a, a creator at some point you have to get out of the way and let the project you know kind of tell itself or let it be what it what it wants to be rather than what you want it to be yeah, uh, I, uh, Isaac Butler, who is a blogger who blogs uh, at a theater blog and also um, talking about literature, uh, cultural topics, all sorts, political topics, all sorts. Um, uh, the blog is called Parabasis, uh, and it um, talks about this uh, in in artistic collaboration, that there is a language among uh, longtime artistic collaborators who are responsible for different departments, like, say, the different department heads on a film or the different designers working on a play or something like that in a highly collaborative art form, uh, like, like a lot of the dramatic arts where there's this rhetoric of, you know, I think this wants to be green or I think this wants to be about, uh, I think this wants to be about three minutes long or something like that. And, and you sort of talk about the, you talk about the thing as though it has a wish, as though it has an ideal form that it's, it's communicating to you. And that's a very good way of kind of actually taking ego, ego out of it uh and and talking about the thing as though uh ta- talking about the good the good of the thing and what what makes the most integrity for the you know for the uh for the work the eventual work i think there is one other uh line that, that i think that the plays the other side of that that i had wanted to bring out uh which is a um the, the will's last line in the first si- scene where we see him right so he where he is um commissioned uh and hired to uh to find them uh he looks down to lion cat and says what kind of a holes um almost almost broke our uh, pg-13 what kind of a holes uh bring a kid into worlds like these yeah um and i think that that's like interesting as well of you know whether it is parenting or creating that there is some there is a bit of a selfish act there right so that kind of gives the lie a little bit to the idea of like well the the child wants this and then the uh, the work needs this what does the work need what does the child need um because there is a little bit of you know there's this interesting interplay between selfishness and selflessness um that comes into the process of bringing something into the world and then keeping it alive once you're there and they're also a little uh different 
and they, they obtain their own um, logics. I, just, I, I wanted to bring that up just because I thought it um, dovetailed nicely with that. And we haven't really talked very much about the Will, and I think the Will is a very interesting character uh, and will continue to be an interesting character. So I at least wanted to uh, give him a little uh, shout out here. Yeah, specialists in violence, right? Yeah, well, specialists in violence. I don't know. Maybe you know. I like the will, but maybe it's that I really like Lion Cat. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, and you know, because Lion Cat uh, only serves one function, but then can then be put in many situations, and you know how Lion Cat will react, or you know exactly how to. Um, uh, interpret uh, lion cat's actions. Uh, so it's, I think it's uh, very important to have a lion cat because um, uh, even though lion cat operates in binaries, um, it, it, uh, she can interact with very complex characters and motivations, uh, and then you get a lot of variation and texture uh, and and both humor and kind of character development uh, just through a very um, you know ostensibly simple character. Yeah, you get a lot of really important information from this character that doesn't say very much. Well, that's right. right. Yeah, yeah. Like, I like again, back to the world of uh, uh, George R. R. Martin's novels. Like, it would be really useful to have a, a, a lion cat in the world of unreliable narrators. Yeah, right? like, <laughs> that's Hodor, isn't it? Yeah, unfortunately, so. unfortunately, we only have a Hodor. Yeah, I was about to say. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I wish I wish most books actually had like a like the equivalent of the um, Microsoft uh, Office clip that shows up. But it's a lying cap. It's like, it seems like you're lying. Would you li- not like to not lie? <laughs> <laughs> The interesting, I mean, uh, uh, one interesting aspect of it is that Lion Cat uh, seems to have a relationship to her own. Um ability, right? That in that first scene where Lion Cat is introduced, where the will is being engaged, uh, Lion Cat ferrets out the first lie, well, doesn't ferret out, cats out the first lie. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then uh, you know, says, uh, you're not, uh, then the uh, the person from Wreath says, and this is a bake-off. Vez. Vez, Vez yeah. uh, the name of the character, the unicorn lady says, uh, this is a bake-off, uh, or am I lying about that? And you see a little humph from <laughs> From, uh, from Lion Cat, it's like, man, I wish I could call BS on on this. So, like, the idea that Lion Cat sort of relishes, uh, you know, we've talked about subversion. Like, one one special case of subversion is kind of like puncturing uh, uh, an inflated, puncturing an inflated sense of self, right? Like, uh, or giving lie to giving lie to pretension, um, and that's and and it's clear that Lion Cat sort of relishes this. Uh, part of her job, uh, this part of her function, and she she's um, you know uh, disappointed that she can't do it in this case. Right, but she's right. not going to lie. She's not going to lie about the lying. Yeah, um, right. So yeah, yeah. Li- the, yeah, lying's a, a professional. Sorry, go ahead, Richard. Oh, I was just going to say that. Yeah, lying cat is like she clearly has her own motivations, her own her own interests, and her own uh, you know preferences and her own desires. She's not just. It, it would it would have been so easy that you know she could have just been a lie detector cat. Right, um, and right. I think right. she really think- has a, a, she really has a, a personality despite um, this very you know not even binary. It's either she says lying or she doesn't really say anything at all. Right. Um, but you can really you really discern a lot of a lot of personality um, from the way obviously the way that she's drawn, which is you know really uh, really well done you get a lot of uh, a lot of visual information about her uh about her state of mind um but just also you know the kind of things that she chooses to comment on and uh it, it's really like it's really uh, i think a storytelling it's br- storytelling brilliance because it could have been so easily uh you know just like a coin flip kind of okay she'll you know say you're lying or you won't and it won't and it'll be funny or or it won't or whatever it'll it'll be it'll serve the plot or it'll it'll just you know be a joke but she is a real character like she's a she's a fully formed character as much pretty much as much as anyone else which is really difficult to do in 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 a sort of gimmick character that it could have been like this and one of the things that I, I think also differentiates Lion Cat from just a lie detector is apparently Lion Cat can also tell when you're lying to yourself, mm. as we see when uh, the Will says he's not going to call the stock back, 
and Lion Cat kind of looks up and you kind of basically sarcastically says lying. Yeah. And in that sense, it, there's a lot of it both tells us something interesting about, you know, the, the extent of Lion Cat's abilities and also something about their relationship and their personality. Because in that moment, Lion Cat is kind of like the Will's like friend who's giving him crap about how he's, you know, you're, yeah, you're going to call her back. Like we all yeah. know you're, you're going to call her back. And so I, I think that's a good actually segue into something, Richard, that uh, you'd brought up, which is the importance of character and setting in this story as opposed to plots. You know, at least so far, the plot is relatively straightforward. We have a mom and a dad and they have a kid. And for a variety of reasons, there are two factions that want them dead and there are some bounty hunters after them. And other than that, the plot, you know, it deliberately elides any details about who's going to win this galaxy-spanning war or, you know, this baby doesn't seem to at least not yet have anything to do with this galaxy-spanning war other than maybe just as a propaganda tool. But right away, we get all these great characters. So, so I, I don't know, I'll just throw that uh, over to you and see what you, what, what, what you had in mind. Yeah, well, uh, one of the things that struck me the most when I, when I started reading this, and again, this is the first time that I've, that I've read the series, um, is that I think unlike most or at least a lot of mainstream comics and you know to the extent that this is published by image um it is a pretty it's still you know fairly mainstream it's definitely not uh you know an underground comic or a perzine that's that's more concerned with character development um this is like a lot more concerned with characters and with especially setting than um a mainstream comic book which I think more typically is concerned with plot. It's a lot, um, a lot happens, but the, in terms of the, uh, the tropes that are being used here, it's fairly typical. You know, you have the star-crossed lovers in a interstellar war. You have, you have, you know, space bounty hunters. You have, uh, you know, a ghost. You have all these things, these these fairly uh, fairly conventional storytelling tropes and and science fiction tropes and so on. Um, but the really interesting stuff that goes on, uh, you know, isn't that isn't the plot stuff. It's what we learn about the setting. What we learn about. Um, the kind of planets there are out there and who's doing what and, and the kind of monsters there are and, and, and uh, just every, everywhere we go, there's something new and weird that we haven't seen before. And also the characters themselves where they're all really well drawn. Um, well, you know, artistically and like visually, they're also well drawn, but I mean, they're, they're three dimensional characters with really, rich inner lives with really pretty clear motivations uh with their own value systems and their own uh cultures and that's really the engine of the story a lot more than a lot more than plot which like i said it was very interesting because i think it it goes against a lot of what mainstream comics tends to do i was wondering what you guys did you, have you guys noticed that as well? Yeah, I, I think I did. I, I guess I noticed another um, side of that, which is that, um, and, and maybe this is slightly different, uh, but it, it was, I also noticed that in addition to all, uh, part of what attracted me to the characters uh, and drew me in initially was not only the characters' motivations um, and kind of sense of, of of who they were, but also the way they spoke. Right. So I find mm-hmm. that I found that the way all the way that all the characters are write, written like sound like believable people in our world. There's like very kind of yeah. grounded and interesting and ca- contemporary language. There's not um, the language is particularly not arch in the way that you would think from a sci-fi or a fantasy world. Um, and so I think what's cool about that is that and it is both kind of funny. It, it's, it's both funny, but it's also um, approachable and kind of, it, it gives a sense of um, the, the sense of informality and of vulgarity and of slang. Um, then kind of 
weirdly, again, we've d- talked a lot about subversion, and I think this is a thing where it subverts um, some of the um, the the fantastical nature of the settings and of the yeah. character design, um, yeah. and so that then it, you know, in some ways, what it is is that you want to keep seeing. It's not as much about what happens next, but it's about how these characters and the, these voices that have been identified will react through these relatively standard and predictable things. Um, and, and in that way, what, it weirdly, it like reminds me, uh, and I, I guess doesn't everything ultimately remind me of this, but it kind of reminds me weirdly of The Wire uh, in that way. <laughs> uh, and the, the, the Wire is another um, uh, piece of fiction in which you know, the uh, writers have a really keen ear for for dialogue and diction and the way people speak and that kind of understanding how these characters and how these voices cope with uh and interpret these um you know these sequences of events is more important than what happens next or who dies and when they die um and i I was thinking i'm going to be the vampire slayer yeah, yeah, I think that's a great example as well, right? So these are cases where it's you know spoilers are less the point than understanding how it happens, uh, and and uh, and and so that leads to a certain amount of infinite variation, even if the plot is n- not where the surprise happens. It's it's kind of in these characters and voices uh, interacting with the the setting and uh, and certain kind of tropes and conventions. I think that might be related to the the fact of this as being a parenting story, because outside of extraordinary circumstances, for most people, the time between zero to 18 years old, it's obviously extremely important. But the least interesting thing is are the things that happened to you when you were a child. Mm. The most interesting thing are probably the people that inhabited your life, the, the places that you weren't, the, the ideas that you heard, the interesting characters in your life, the crazy grandpa, the goofy uncle, like whoever it is that influenced yep. your life. It's much yeah. more and the cultural that stuff that's happening while you're growing up. Yes, yeah, it's right? much what, more likely what, that it's a character music, or a what setting. Music is, what music are you listening to and uh, you know, what television shows are you watching? Like In this case, it's the war. The war is what's all around. Um, but in, you know, unusual, in a usual childhood, it would be more of the, the cultural background. Yeah. I mean, that is interesting because then it's in that way, it's like war in the, in addition to being part of setting, the war is also a kind of part of the pop culture in which the story is taking place. Um, mm-hmm. and I think that the other piece of that, and, um, and you know, I, I, this is not a spoiler to say that this will come back, but the, um, the romance novel, um, that Alana was, was reading, um, <laughs> right. Uh, the, uh, a nighttime smoke is also another one of these pieces of, of popular culture of this time um that uh is introduced and is uh important here so i think that i think that's like a really um interesting idea of of reading this of of kind of it's setting a time but uh, and again we know this through hazel's narration that it's a time in the past so there's a there's kind of a nostalgia for a both you know developmental stage and a era of uh of, of culture or time that was associated with growing up uh even if that's not the vantage point from which the story is being told, uh, which is some indeterminate time in the future. I'm a little curious to hear Image described as a mainstream publisher. I mean, I think of them as being not as big as the as the really big players in the industry. They're they're number three. You well, know, sure. There's Marvel and DC, and then there's Image. Yeah, uh, I think that in the I don't know in the 90s, Image could be could have been described as alternative. Um. But not for quite a while. Yeah. It's still, I, th- I think these days it's fair to fair to describe them as p- pretty mainstream. They have enough, like they have enough of the. <laughs> I guess they have enough properties that I like, where I think of them as like the good one. <laughs> yeah. <you know? laughs> um, and and as a home for idiosyncratic storytelling, and as as a home for voices that as a home not for where the identity of the publisher is maybe more. This is a home for uh, unique storytelling. Or that's true. They they. Most Mostly these days are doing uh, creator-owned properties and stuff like that. Right, rather uh, than rather than kind of a franchise mentality. Yeah, but in terms of distribution, they're obviously they they're not they don't sell like Marvel and DC do. Um, they do more. I mean, it's what you'd call alternative, I guess. But they also. But uh, they're the, they're at the very head of that pack. They yeah exactly, and probably like number one with a bullet. I'll bet. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, um, yeah, and it was, so it's it's. I mean, it's interesting to think of it as being you know as being a subversion of like plot, especially sort of plot to you know I don't know plot to save the world, right? Like, right. You, you can even set this uh, not even against comics, but against like comic book movies, mm-hmm. where it seems like the most the most interesting things about you know the Avengers franchise, for example, or is the is the fact that it's uh, uh, written and directed by. Uh, uh, the creative Buffy, the vampire slayer, right? Yeah. That, uh, that, you know, we're talking about relationships. We're talking about idiosyncrasy and that like the, the, um, you know, the, the normal, the normalcy of what happens in saga is almost a parody normalcy, right? Yeah, there's, that's true. there's almost but- like a gumshoe like quality just in some of the aphoristic, uh, quality of what Hazel says, like good help is hard to find and <laughs> things like that. Right. It's almost, uh, it's almost a joke about, about normalcy. Yeah. It's interesting actually that that's a, uh, yeah, that's a good point. And that makes me think that the stakes are kind of the inverse of most of those things. Like, there is this interstellar war going on, and yet uh, the characters that we follow the the most closely um, could not care less about the result of that war, Um, and they only care about themselves and this baby of theirs right yeah light, just, light side of the force yeah light side of the force dark side of the forest who gives a crap yeah. right <laughs> like we're we're invested in we're invested in a person navigating this you know sort of this slalom course of of mortal peril at every turn right well i think that's a good place to leave it obviously we'll have uh, five more weeks of uh talking about saga thanks guys uh, it's been a great talk um for those listening, we'll, we're going to continue with the forum, so please get active there on uh, our usual schedules. Every kind of Thursday or Friday, we'll post some discussion questions, and we'll hopefully get your feedback over the weekend. And then we'll we'll talk about them here when we record on Mondays. And one thing uh, about one thing about the forums, you can also create any listener uh, who creates an account on Overthinking It can create forum topics, and you shouldn't feel limited to the things that we want to talk about. We'll just get the discussion going. But please start as many conversations as you wish, and uh, we and other listeners will jump in uh, and mix it up with you. Yes, we would, we would much rather hear from you than have uh, you hear from us in the forums. So uh, please jump in and uh, get active. And where can you find those forums? At overthinkingit.com, the place where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it pro- probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve.